Welcome everybody to the second episode of Interop Talk, where we discuss new developments happening in the interoperability space. I'm Dave Castle, Senior Vice President of Customer Success at Health Gorilla and former Executive Director at Cura Quality. I'm joined by Dr. Stephen Lane, Chief Medical Officer at Health Gorilla and former Director of Clinical Informatics and Interoperability at Sutter Health. Devin McGraw is here, Data Sharing Lead at Invitae and former Deputy Director for Health Information Privacy at HHS. And Jennifer Blumenthal, CEO and founder of One Record. We're our, we are also adding a special guest today, Lisa Barry, CEO of Civitas Networks for Health and former Health IT and Interoperability Lead at CMS. So, Ryan, continuing, I wanted to start today's conversation with individual access. This is a really important use case for many healthcare organizations. And today, many entities don't respond to individual access requests, at least in the context of what we would consider standard health information interoperability transactions. They do respond in, in other ways as the law requires. But we do expect that responses to these types of queries for individual access in the context of health interoperability initiatives nationwide are going to become much more widespread. What constitutes individual access in that context, and what do we think it will enable in the healthcare ecosystem? I'm happy to take a stab at that, or at least the initial stab at that. Individual access means the ability of a patient, of an individual, of a person, to be able to get access to the data that's been generated about them in the healthcare system. So whether that's medical record data, or claims data from a health plan, if that's one of the endpoints on a network, but it's it comes stems a little bit from the HIPAA of access, which allows individuals to get all of the data that's been generated about them in the course of their treatment or in the course of payment to be able to get a copy of that, and it got of course reinforced in the uh, in the in the information blocking rules. It's mostly about the individual getting access to their own data, but it also means that somebody who is legally responsible for making medical decisions for another person, like a parent or a guardian over a minor, or someone who's taking care of an adult where you have a power of attorney or a healthcare proxy to make decisions on their behalf, customarily under HIPAA, those are considered to be individuals who have the right to get this data. And in a digital world, the individuals may be asking themselves, or they may actually use an app and that sort of presents a request for that data, as opposed to customarily the way we all used to do it in the paper-based world, if we even got our records at all, was knocking on the door of the medical records office of the hospital or begging the assistant in our doctor's <laughs> office to get us a copy of the records. So it's definitely, we're anticipating that there'll be some digital tools that will essentially be the voice of the patient and asking for that. But that's I think that's in a nutshell what we mean by individual access. I think there's there there could be some extensions to this if you think it through in terms of patient makes request for data to go to another person. I'm not trying to get access to my own data, but I want you to send my data to the next doctor that I'm going to go see. That's another sort of version of individual access. I think it's one that's gotten a lot less focus. I think it's also one that raises some complications. But nevertheless, it I think for it could and should be part of discussions that we have about making sure that individuals are not really able to take advantage of these growing networks of health information to, to help themselves and their family members. 
Devin, let me add on to that a little bit because I think it, uh, you did mention the old paper days, right? When we would go and ask for copies of our records. And then there have been a number of technology solutions that have come on board, implemented the very first patient portal over 20 years ago. And of course, portals have played an increasing role, though though not comprehensive, in providing individuals with access to their data. And then, and then now, probably close to five years ago, we started seeing the earliest API accesses so with Apple Health and Common Health and some of the and one record, of course, yes, where individuals have been able to, to actually point an app at their EHR and pull data out that way. So I think that there's a lot going on. Then there's the view, download, and transmit requirement that came with, I think it was the HITECH Act, that where an individual would be able to view essentially a CCD, a continuity of care document, and then either download that themselves or have it directed to another provider or another recipient. So I think that all of those are at play here in the IAS. But yes, absolutely, as we move towards this as a required response under the TEFCA, it, we're going to see how this plays out uh, because the technology is, you know, there are these various technology solutions in place today and which uh, of those are going to be required under TEFCA. I think we, we're going to see that play itself out. Yeah, if I can add to that as well, I think that IAS is both a really big deal and also not a big deal at all in the everyday interactions in our healthcare system. And it should be a bigger deal, right? Patients, consumers, what you will, are used to being able to pull and access and have expectations for getting their own data. But unlike those other daily transactions, generally, and maybe this is changing in the future, they don't pay directly or pay only a portion that they can't control of their healthcare, and it's a little bit different of an interaction. So folks like OneRecord and many of our HIE and other interoperability exchange members are really saying, okay, I've got to make sure that I, in some cases like OneRecord, you're really existing to serve that individual use case and getting people access via an app that they can use their data and direct their data from. Other organizations like the ones who my organization serves are adding individual access services when their health information exchanges weren't necessarily built for that. Many of them use in VTAs services that they're just building now to support those requirements. But there's a there's a like we've got to get over this hill of people understanding when and how and why to access and use their own data and actually take advantage of those new services that are available to them in electronic form. In the rest of the market, it's really just about really making sure that those basic HIPAA transactions, those treatment payment operations transactions can happen seamlessly and electronically. So we wanna do both. Obviously the bulk of the stuff that's happening is stuff that should already be happening on the back end without all this gnashing of teeth, right? I shouldn't have to make an individual access request when I go to a new doctor. Tear my hair out has the trillionth time this has happened that I go to a new provider and have to fill out the same stuff or ask them to use the service that they're legally required to use in the state of Maryland to get my records, things like that. So there's, there's it's a huge deal and it's also like not the biggest piece of exchange that's happening and isn't necessarily the answer for making those existing problems better, but it could also help like on the side and it could get bigger and it could be really important. Yeah, I know the piece of the question that I didn't answer, Dave, is what the value proposition is. And I think Lisa leaned into that a little bit more. Like it's in terms of the patients that, that we have seen on the citizen platform, 
they are empowered to seek their, to try to find clinical trials for the conditions they're facing. We have a lot of cancer patients and patients with rare neurological disorders. We, they are enabling patients to decide where their research data is going in terms of powering research projects and registries on in putting their data where at causes that they care about. We're just starting to see what gains can happen in the healthcare system when you empower patients with their data and allow them to choose more definitively how that data gets access, used, and shared that I think will really, we'll see a lot more of that as we continue on our effort to make individual access services more of the norm and less of something that's this novel, novel thing. Yeah. And Jennifer, I'm sure you've been just champing at the bit to weigh in here since this is so close to your heart. I think you touched on a really interesting point there, though, Devin, when you mentioned clinical trials. As one example, to Lisa's point, there are things where we hope the patient doesn't have to individually intervene. But then there are some others where the patient's individual interaction and intervention... I'm interrupting you and waving my All of Us collection kit, which is one of the uses and one of the possible access points for an individual who wants to contribute their data, their electronic electronic health records data, their health IT related data, also potentially genetic data. <laughs> yeah. No, and it's another good example. I think the, these types of examples that actually don't fall squarely into treatment payment and operations, and it's worth putting a bookmark in there that payment and operations do not exactly flow smoothly through the interoperability world today with respect to the, those purposes being used for, for a large volume of, of, of transactions. But that said, I think it, it enabling some of these research, perhaps some other more almost commercial-based transactions where there may be some need to access your health records and then to provide it on to another party, I see those as being real drivers for IAS. And I think that if we actually allowed the, that to operate, if you will, that there will, in fact, be a number of use cases that pop up fairly quickly that will hopefully patients will want to use that that also empower some interesting outcomes. And I do think that research is an important one among those. So I think the pipe is clogged right now. <laughs> is and Dave knows this better than anyone. I came to Dave seven years ago. I'm like, hey, I want to connect to care quality and build a patient access app. And he's like, sure, joined. And then I learned everything about care quality and Commonwealth and state HIEs and then fire. The problem right now with individual access to what Lisa just said is it's not the priority. These networks are built for treatment. And so when you're in technical work groups or policy discussions, like Devin didn't sit in most of the policy work groups where I've learned from her and gotten to listen to her over the past couple of years, so many things would not have gotten through in the brains of people who are making decisions within their organizations. The real problem right now that we have with individual access services, which is using traditional forms of exchange across networks or within HIEs is that people don't support it. And what I'm seeing, and it, it makes me very frustrated, is that people who want to use the consumer or the patient or the member as the person who gets their data and shares the data are finding these gray areas and exploiting these gray areas for their commercial benefit. And what it does is it erodes the trust in the networks. Okay. So then providers, the data sources, the data holders are like, oh, I'm not going to opt into this voluntary network where we've already seen abuse. And I think that is the biggest thing that frustrates me about individual access is not even the rate of adoption. It's more of people coming in with models and they are willing to move fast and break things in order to show their valuations. And then it ruins all the work that 
people like Lisa and Devin have done all these years. And I think that's the most frustrating thing. Like, I don't think you should query on second opinion for non-clinical purpose if that second opinion is not really supposed to be under treatment. There are just so many things where people are abusing that gray area. And it's like, to me, like if Dr. Elaine, Stephen retires and I go to him, I'm like, hey, can you tell me like, you see this mole? What do you think about this? He's not providing treatment. He's just giving me his opinion. He doesn't mean he gets to go get my data and then give it to a clinical trial that's doing like mole research. It's not how it works. So <laughs> that's my soapbox for today on treatment versus patient access is individual access needs to be priority so people don't abuse the treatment use case for commercial gain at the expense of privacy. Do they really know what's happening? No. Lisa, you made a really good point that I want to drill down on a little bit, which is patients using this access as a way to contribute data back. You raised the all of us as an example, but the whole, you, to me, once you've provided access, you've really ideally opened up a bi-directional channel of exchange. Uh, right. We did that with the portal. You could view data right. and then you could start to con contribute. You could have discussions, but very few health systems have actually opened things up very far for patients really to be able to contribute data. We'll give you a few questionnaires. You can give us a little bit of this, but the idea of patients really being able to provide more rich patient-generated health data to be able to review their data, verify its veracity, and make sure it's up to date, and then certify that, I think is really important. And then something that a number of us have talked about is patient privacy controls, allowing patients to see what data is being held on them, whether it's in an HIE or by an app or even by a provider organization, and then being able to have some control over that. So I think thinking about IAS as a bi-directional connection mm -hmm. is really important, I think, and should well, and to, be and to, to more under TEFCA, right? To revoke access as well. There, as you, as you, as I'm sure you're probably involved in as well, there was a workshop on read-write API access a few months slash probably a year ago at this point that just was finally turned into a report. No action has really been taken. One of the other critical things about individual access, like you're just saying here, is that it would be wonderful and it should be bi-directional in that I should really be able to verify, revoke, delete, mark as inaccurate. There are so many errors just in my medical records, which are not that complex. The way that many health systems have implemented this is to allow you to, big old air quotes here, to put a message next to something that you have deemed inaccurate or no longer there. No, I don't have a cold anymore, right? So I'm not taking that medication that was like a year and a half ago, and it was obviously a one-time thing. So why is it still in my record as current medication that I'm obviously not taking? For example, and you can put your sort of annotation and say, hey, this was from a year and a half ago, and then probably no one is ever assigned to make that update or change or verify that you made that request. So I think that's also an interesting point in terms of people getting something back. All of Us is obviously is currently a really interesting program. They're really trying to give you information back about, number one, how they're using your electronic health information, why, like what kind of insights they're getting, what it means. They're working really hard to communicate that back and give, trying to give some value back to the people who are contributing their data. And I'd love to see more of that across various programs, whether it's in care delivery or in some other function where I'm contributing my data. You know, it's interesting to what Lisa just said is when we were doing our early implementation for Care Quality in Commonwealth and the Shiny in New York is we were told that any data that's generated by the consumer needs to be flagged as patient-generated data in our backend. 
and that if we were going to participate in bi-directional exchange, we should not send any patient-generated data. We should only resend the clinical data that we get from you know, external sources as the aggregate longitudinal record. So it actually created an issue for us as we wanted to move more to where Lisa's describing, because we had to decide how do we deal with the, a user generating data or annotations and sending that back? There's a there's work groups at HL7 that lead this, the patient empowerment work groups on how do you correct data. So it's funny to listen to, okay, this is what we should be doing, but what we were told to do is so they're at opposite ends, right? Definitely second class citizen for sure in the hierarchy of who is determining what's in your medical records, not yeah. even considered in many cases. And then yeah. something I was recently educated on was as a lot of organizations are thinking about how do they get their, how do they opt in their patients? So let's say a provider organization wants to participate in TEFCA and they need the EHR to maybe enroll them into a network, let's just say. How do you deal with those different state consent rules? What does that look like? I think the HIEs know this better than probably the national networks do because there's so many nuances to the state consent rules and what does that look like at a national level? But those existed before we ever put individual access on the table. I know. Like those consent laws around certain types of data requiring additional consent for it to be disclosed even for treatment or even a separate set of laws that just apply to the HIEs in a particular state or region, like those have been around since before care equality and Commonwealth even started. Presumably there should be some solution for how that gets vetted. And my recollection is it's up to the disclosing party to be monitoring what gets released. And, and if they're subject to a sort of disclose requirement, New York's kind of an interesting animal because it's consent to access. Where I've heard it be interesting is in more of not the enrollment, but the unenrollment. So let's say I, as a consumer, realize my data is within Health Gorilla, Care Quality, Commonwealth, any other potential QHIN. I know care, I'm just putting everybody together. I'm not designating who's what. How do you, I find out my data is here. How do I unenroll? But maybe I already signed some sort of authorization form within my provider organization that says, as consenting to treatment, I'm also consenting to sharing my data. Like these are little nuances that are going to pop up as individual access grows. Pro-individual access, just to clarify. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's complicated. And what you're saying is definitely true. And one of the reasons why we have still a very successful and statewide health information exchange organizations who are really trying to merge into this idea of a health data utility, which serves different types of use cases. But that's important because not only laws, but also preferences and landscapes in healthcare are different state to state and region to region. And in some cases, you might see in the future certain states and certain regions teaming up to have these robust communities that also potentially manage individual access. You can see in the Northeast, for example, I bet you that way more than half of people in Vermont have received healthcare in Massachusetts, for sure, if not more than that, if not all of them. And same thing with New Hampshire and so on and so forth. So you can see some places geographically where it makes sense to have really aligned policies there. But New York can't share data with New Jersey. But New York can't share, <laughs> yeah. But New York and New Jersey, nope, nope, the two will never join. <laughs> <That's weird. laughs> well, it, it, yeah, it, it, interesting discussion for sure. I think the point that is, has stuck in my mind since you raised it as the example, Jen, was, but what if you want to be part of Dr. Lane's mole study? That, that's, I think, where we need to have perhaps better solutions than we do today. The other thing that, that strikes me, and I, with the subject of the state variations, I tell me if, if this is an oversimplification, but it feels like that's a place where 
with good identity proofing, with good verification, and that opens up admittedly a whole other can of worms, doesn't individual access actually solve some of those issues where if you're able to release the information to the patients makes it much simpler. You don't have to worry so much about, oh, hang on, did I catch up with the latest actions of the New Hampshire state legislature? Yeah, I think so. If I, I'm a native New Yorker, right? I have no plan to move to New Jersey, but my best friend just moved to New Jersey and she can't, they can't send her records from the city over to where she now lives in the middle of New Jersey. So she could go get it. And she has a need. She's a mom. She manages her health, her kids' health, parents' health. But uh, yeah, that's not the case. So I think it would do that. I think there's just still not enough trust right now that they're, this is the age-old story. Everybody on this call knows it. You can't trust that you are properly exposing the data in a non-OAuth workflow, which is so stale and so disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. that the question here is, is it the intention of the law slash is it the right of the people to supersede state laws around various types of consent and various types of data? And I would say yes, but we have to be really careful when we are potentially encouraging the federal government to use a workaround to supersede state laws, if yeah. that's what's happening. I, I don't consider them. Go ahead. Yeah, go, go ahead, Devin, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think we were heading in the same place. I don't consider them workarounds. I think it's yet another way of empowering patients to make choices is to say to them, you get a copy of your data and you send it where you want it to go. Like the, at one point there was an entire, and this was years ago, there was an entire HIE model that was promoted by some folks that it is the patient record banks. Other than- Health patient- records banking. Yep. Health record banking that in, instead it would be put in a bank for you to decide when you shared it. I, I'm not sure that giving patients the data solves all of the issues around patient consent, but it sure does make sure that the patient has the agency to get the data where they need it, when they need it, even if we don't necessarily have to make them the pack mule, pack mules of their own data, right? We're not sharing that data. If you want it sent to your right. next doctor, you do it. I think oh. that's more my concern, right? Is yes. that, yes, definitely fully am a hundred million percent behind patients having full access in the form and format they want immediately all of the above. But I don't want them to be forced to be the ones who carry all the water as they pretty much are today, if we're being honest. I really want to be able to sign an authorization once and have my records follow me. And I think that's most people based on their expectations, not everybody. And that's got to be okay. There should be an option of people who are like, I want to control everything about where my health data goes. But that's also not the law. That's not what really is happening. And so I think, again, I just want to make sure that patients don't get stuck in this role of having to do this all the time if they don't want to. And there's an equity concern as well, because there's totally. a lot of people who just don't have the wherewithal or totally. interest to engage in this way. So I think, as you were saying, Lisa, we need to think about the people who want complete control, who really you know, find that important to them. And we also have to take care of the kids and the old people and the people with mental illness and the people who just have other things in life to focus on besides managing their health data. Right. I think though that point, you are hundred percent right on the equity perspective, but what I've noticed in work groups is people get stuck on that. They said, well, if we can't do it for all, we shouldn't do it for any. And I'm like, no, you have to do it for as many people as possible. So you can figure out how to do it for all. You don't, that's just how, you know, that's how you build products. You have to try on a test group and you have to keep iterating from there. I'm not disagreeing with you. I just hear other people saying, if we can't do it for these groups, if we can't do it for kids, we shouldn't try it all. And I'm like, no, no, 
we have to keep going. And I think maybe another way of stating that is, is that individual access does not replace exchange for treatment and someday, hopefully, payment and operations, but that it augments, it opens up some additional use cases, and it may also assist in some cases, even for treatment purposes, where there, there may be some systematic barriers. I hesitate to use the word barrier, but there, there may be some systematic reasons why in some geographies or some circumstances, individual access is helpful. But again, I see it's a supplement. It's a different use case for the most part, not trying to make it a binary choice, one or the other between do we pursue treatment-based exchange or do we pursue individual access? Yeah, totally. Not that I didn't intentionally try to sort of take the last word there, but let's take advantage of that pause to, to shift gears slightly. We here at Health Gorilla recently announced, along with Meditech, a, a collaboration to bring some of our EHR interoperability tools to Canada. Um, acknowledging that Canada certainly is not just starting out its journey here. They, they have had a variety of interoperability efforts that they've been working on as well over the years. What is the top piece of advice you would give to Canada or any other country based on your experience here in the U.S.? I think understanding, I know a little bit about Canada's structure and just like a couple of other countries, they have a, a province-based structure and health systems that are pretty much structured at that level as well. So they still have absolutely inter-province interoperability issues and then also things in different settings in provinces. And so I would just say you really need a structure that takes into account the particular geography and people and preferences of each jurisdiction, each governance region, while really promoting great interoperability across different systems. And so really make sure that you have that stakeholder engagement in the communities, the healthcare community, the social services community in each region to really feed the development and the buy-in of those policies, including patients, including providers, including various other stakeholders, to be to have their voices heard, to really get buy-in for interoperability. Because it is very much a workflow issue more than a technical issue, not to downplay the work that you're doing as a technology partner, but to say that we pretty much understand those pieces. And what we don't understand is really how to get everyone to change their actions and their workflows and their behaviors and really change the culture of information sharing. I think also Canada's, the U.S. surprisingly, as, as much as hard as we have worked to try to get individual access to, to be less kludgy, and we, we still have a lot of work to do to make it as seamless as it should be, we have definitely taken way more steps forward in terms of making this sort of more seamless for patients than other countries have in general. There, there is has always been a right under Canadian privacy law for people to get copies of their data, but it's not as obvious or as streamlined as HIPAA in terms of how much patients can be charged for that access, how easy it is supposed to be. And so to the extent that Canada is looking to supersize its kind of interoperability efforts and make sure that it meets its healthcare system goals, I think they should take a look more at patient access. And Health Gorilla is a great company to be making that point with them, given you know, for how long Health Gorilla has supported patient access and been a real proponent of making sure that interoperability efforts include the ability of patients to also get access to copies of their data. Again, not as the Sherpas of health data for the healthcare system, <laughs> but as a way for them to be empowered to, to make good decisions for themselves and make sure that the data can is pushed to initiatives that they care about. The thing, Dave, that I think perhaps Canada could leverage if they look at what we've done in the U.S. is look at what we've done around the scope of the data 
that needs to be accessible. The work we've done on USCDI and now the extension to the all EHI standard for information sharing. And I don't know whether they have a USCDI equivalent in Canada or if they just want to point at ours, but I think it is nice to be clear about the scope of the data, the standards that underlie the data, because I think that's really been a bit of a success that we've had is in being able to agree across the entire country about what data we're talking about exchanging. Yeah, I think that it's an interesting point. And to the extent that there are, the question isn't so much about the specific project that, that we are working on, but it's worth noting that the organizations involved in the first phases of that project are either U.S.-based vendors or, in one case, a Canadian vendor that also does business in the U.S. So there are there's reason to think that we can go ahead and probably, by default almost, use some of those U.S. standards in, in terms of the actual information that is, is exchanged. The other thing that I would say is I know that Canada is starting with trying to manage exchange within provinces, and then they've gonna, they're going to have a second step of going between provinces. But I think as we talk about this, we should really be looking ahead towards a, a time when we're talking about global health data interoperability. So I think that the fact that we have these common vendors and potentially some common standards that are working on either side of an international border, thinking from the beginning about how we're then going to support data exchange across that border and across all the borders. Because in while so much of healthcare is local, people are so mobile these days. And certainly Canadians spend time in the US, people move back and forth throughout North America and around the world. And I think we should all be striving towards an international interoperability, hopefully in our lifetimes. I have a crass thought on that, which is as more and more medical tourism becomes popular because it's so much cheaper to get that procedure done overseas. Yeah, it would help if the data could be interoperable so that the, you know, the care that you receive overseas for much cheaper can be Come part of the medical records that are shared by your U.S. doctors when you return home. I feel like there's a direction we could turn there, but the I mean, it, actually, in all seriousness, from the international interoperability standpoint, there there obviously are some, some hurdles to get over in terms of the differences between the various countries' privacy laws and where information can be hosted and how it can be shared. Maybe one of those cases where, for now, if we were to have individual access enabled more more internationally, that patients could be the in that case, and not that is an ideal process in general, but if you're crossing an international border, that may be one of the cases where it could be a more valid workflow. So let's uh, let's switch gears again and talk a little bit about social determinants of health. Lisa Civitas announced last month that it has received a million-dollar grant to further the implementation and dissemination of Gravity Project. Can you tell us a little bit more about that work that you're doing? Yeah, so Gravity Project is a really wonderful initiative in the last couple of years that is governed by its executive committee and a huge stakeholder group across the industry working to create and accelerate fire-based standards for social determinants domains. Civitas and its members have been involved in a bunch of different ways, and many of them serve on the executive committee or the strategic advisory committee and all the various other technical committees as well with HL7 and also as part of the broader community. 
And we really wanted to help move a lot of this work into implementation in our communities through our members, the communities that they already work with. Let's get those standards into practice. Let's get a feedback loop going from the community organizations and those people actually on the ground. How does this help? How does this speed up? How does this potentially harm the work that they're doing? So that's what we're going to do. We have a bunch of, we're going to build on the pilots affinity group that the Gravity Project was already working on, expand that get into more communities and pilot programs and really try and make that feed feedback loop go. While we also support the continued sort of evolution of Gravity Project with HL7 as they're looking to build new domains in, 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 their, work, in their standards work and continue to expand the project. So we hope to just really accelerate that. It's really exciting for us, funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, who have funded our organization in the past. And most of that money is going right back out to our members and to their communities to get this work done. So we're just super excited. It's a big boost for the work we're doing at Civitas and all of our members really leading in SDUH data and interoperability. Are there opportunities for others to get involved in the work? Yeah, definitely. So first of all, this is not exactly the same thing, but Gravity Project is open to the public. There's tons of opportunities to be involved in creating and advancing their domains. If you're a subject matter expert, there's a bunch of areas to get involved there. And then with the implementation work that we're doing, stay tuned to Civitas channels. We're just getting the, the, the program launched and there'll be lots of ways you can get involved and Civitas members and broader community members will also be able to get involved for sure. So probably in the next couple of months here, as we just get launched, there'll be lots of news about ways to ways to engage. Excellent. So Stephen, from your standpoint as a clinician, how do you react to, to the fact that this work is gaining some traction? What do the social determinants of health really give us from a clinical standpoint in terms of making them more part of the standard interoperability landscape? I think it's very exciting and I think challenging for, for clinicians in particular. I think it's well known that probably 70 to 80% of our health status is determined by factors outside of the control of the direct control of the health system. So these, these social issues are so critically important. And But I think that health systems providers in general are pretty busy doing what they're doing with all of the clinical data. And they don't have systems in place to either collect or even deal with the social issues. So I think the more that we can learn about how to work together across the social service and medical services to collect data in a standardized way, and frankly, to use, take advantage of data that's already being collected. I think the data that we're working on in gravity to be able to collect that data directly from individuals, whether it's in a healthcare setting, in a social care setting, through a portal, et cetera. That's great, but there's already a lot of SDOH type data out there just based on where people live and work, on their, their geography and what are the characteristics of their communities, and then other publicly available data that's out there about all of us as individuals that can be harnessed and brought together. So I think, you know, my hope is that we're going to be accessing these SDOH type data from many sources, including those that are being promulgated through gravity, and then bring them together to have as much of a holistic view as possible. How much is that going to impact the physician who's seeing you in the emergency room or the operating room or the clinic versus care managers, behavioral health providers, social service providers. I think it's yet another opportunity for us to look at giving 
providing more holistic care, more team-based care, more multidisciplinary care, realizing that while it's going to be critical to say to me as a physician to know that someone's going to have challenges with transportation or affording their medications or getting the food that they need to address their nutritional concerns, I'm not as a physician going to be addressing those directly. So I think the opportunity is really to make sure that we have these integrated referral mechanisms that are being developed now, where if a social need is identified by a clinical care team, that a referral to the appropriate resource can be made, and then that those can be closed loop referrals so that I can know that actually happened. Did the patient get their medicine? Did they get their nutrition counseling? Did they get their transportation met, need met? But, but I got to tell you, this is brand new to most clinical care settings, and it's going to ask, require people to really expand their thinking to be able to incorporate this into care planning. Totally. Right. And, and, and there's a couple of directions that, that occurred to me there. One, one is you, you mentioned the referrals out into community services, which I think is an excellent point. They, it's an interesting question of to, as to whether we should expect those services to I want to say play by our rules in the sense of adopting healthcare standards, or if it's more realistic for us to meet them a little bit more where they're at. I, I actually don't know, and it's a gap in my knowledge to be filled in, how much services like that are participating in Firebase accelerator projects. But it would certainly be interesting to, to think about how much the healthcare system can do to make that easy on those folks who probably don't have a lot to spend on systems typically. This is reminding me a lot, Stephen, of the conversations going on in the state of California right now with the data. They have a data sharing framework mandate that healthcare providers ha have to share data and they have to sign a data sharing agreement. There's an expectation that social services will also be part of this data sharing mix. And how do you, without picking a single sort of architecture for how this data sharing gets done. How do you accomplish the sharing of data with social services when they're not likely using technology that, that is wired for fire or necessarily know how to deal with that data, much less share it back? So I think it is an interesting set of questions. It also does raise a privacy issue, Stephen, and I'm glad you mentioned that the physician, that there are many physicians that are not quite ready for this data because an argument can be made that if, if that you shouldn't be collecting this data if it's just going to sit in your records and nobody's going to pay any attention to it and do anything with it. Right. So if you're not wired to, to deal with the whole person, it's not to say that it would necessarily be the physician that would be expected to attend to somebody's social needs. But if you're not part of a system that does have individuals who are responsible for making referrals and coordinating that stuff, then the intake of all of this data, it definitely cuts against most privacy principles that I've ever been aware of, that you collect the data you need when you need it, and you don't just go vacuum up a bunch of data that you never intend to use. And I do think I, I'm a big fan of the sharing of social determinants data. It's reminded me of one of my favorite classes in public health school that was a real eye-opener for me around just how much um, what happens to you outside of the out of medical care, just education levels, income levels, where you live, whether you have access to healthy food matters so much in terms of what your outcomes are going to be. It was very eye-opening to me, but we're looking at sharing this with healthcare systems that are not, and doctors in particular, that are not necessarily equipped to do anything about addressing those concerns. And yet we're working very hard to make sure that data moves in the way that it should. And I do hope 
that the catcher's mitts on this data are actually ready for it and that we're not just flooding practices with a bunch of data that they're never going to use. Um, it becomes a recipe for mischief. And so another real concern, I think, with SDOH is, is the concerns about equity, uh, which is to say that if you show a provider the challenges that an individual is facing, they may just throw up their hands and say, I'm not going to bother because you're not going to be able to access any of these services that I have to provide. And I think that there, there is a concern that people will not get the same attention based on information we may have about their income, their educational status, et cetera. So I think, as you were pointing out, we have to be able to act on this data in a positive way to figure out what are the salient opportunities to improve people's health and to address those. And yeah, and physicians often aren't in the position to do that. I also think that some of the less that we hopefully are going to be learning about individual access and consent will carry over to this work that we're going to be doing with the Gravity Project. There's obviously many different approaches and initiatives and groups that are working on various types of ways to collect consent. And there are also a couple large technology players in the space, UnitedS and FindHealth and QS Systems and a few others that are trying to figure this out. But I think it's a whole community effort. It can't just be one technology firm or the other. It has to really be a unified approach. So I think the lessons from individual access will hopefully, individual access for healthcare records will flow into this space as well. But I think that also really goes into the conversation you were just having around, are we collecting things just for the sake of collecting them? Now with Gravity, we are trying to use a community of experts and community connectedness to create the best, most logical data standards for this work. But that certainly will help with us collecting and sharing and exchanging those information. But we should certainly only do it if we have consent, number one, and if we have a place for people to go. And one of the things that we talk about a lot is, of course, where do people go um, community-based organizations, CBOs often receive those referrals, and they famously are extraordinarily understaffed, do not have good um, health IT systems, are not connected into the interoperability landscape of their healthcare communities necessarily, um, and deal with a whole other range of interoperability issues from healthcare agencies. So it, it's just really, it's a much bigger issue. It does connect into healthcare, and we want to try and make that as, as effective as possible while respecting the complex landscape of social care referrals. Yeah, indeed. And I'll say, and I was debating whether I was going to say it or not, but it occurs to me that the the individual access use case may even have some applicability where there, it certainly is not completely universal, but there, there are many folks who have a number of challenges in their life, but nonetheless do have a smartphone. It's really something that is pretty a pretty basic thing that that a lot of folks will tend to have. Again, not a requirement to access services for most people. And, and most people, more people have a smartphone of some kind than have a home computer or home internet access necessarily. So absolutely, it's where people access information. Yeah, uh, yeah, it may be even in the absence of sophisticated systems by some of the, the the community services that that the patient being able to access their own records can play a role there as well. But I feel like I've I've got a hammer and everything's turning into a nail with respect <laughs> to individual access. You're not going to oh, hear right, any argument be... from us on that. Or at least <laughs> we're proposing like individual access. <laughs> right.
Uh, it's a fr friendly audience for me to use my hammer and swing it around a bit. I guess one one final question, I want to be cognizant of the time here and thank everyone for participating. We did have a significant healthcare conference, the HLTH conference uh, here recently. I know not everyone was there. I actually the, did not have the privilege of attending myself, but for those who were there, were there any major themes that, that stuck out at you from that? I wasn't there the whole time. I was only there Sunday Monday, but I'm sure Stephen could fill you in on the rest of the week. But for me, I really like health. We exhibited there the first years. I think this is their fifth year. This is our first year we did an exhibit. And I like the stakeholders who show up. And I like the conversation. I think this was their biggest year yet. What caught my eye specifically was how many food-focused startups there were on the exhibit floor. So really thinking about food as health. I thought that was really interesting. And then the amount of VCs and PE and any other kind of investors who were there. That's incredible to see it. We, I just exited, right? We just sold our company, but if I was fundraising, I would have been there saying hello. A disappointing thing was, and Stephen and I actually sat in the same panel together. We walked over and listened is in the main stage room, they had a session called healthcare buzzwords when they had four funded organizations talk about their predictions. If you threw out a word. And then next room over, Mickey Tripathi was presenting and he gave a great presentation, which is an iteration on presentations I've heard him before, but he tailored it for that group. And some of the slides that he showed, they were A++. I took pictures and have repurposed them already. And it was disappointing to see how many people who were listening to CEOs and what their focus of their business was versus listening to what the government was saying. So the two things I took away from that was Mickey's really pushing forward open infrastructure. And he had this slide where he described, you know, fire APIs with the OAuth workflow as the retail APIs, and then the wholesale APIs were Tefka. And so I really, I liked that slide a lot. I was like, mm, I'm mm. going to reuse this one. So big themes are, there's a lot of funding going into the space, a lot of conversations around SDOH and technology and services that either sit adjacent or sit on top of the EHR. And also where care is given. It's not any new themes from the past five years, but the themes are getting more mature. And, and I'll just add to that a little bit. You mentioned the focus on food as medicine. There, there were also apps there that were using music as medicine. Oh yeah, I saw that one. I liked that one. Virtual reality tools. And I was really struck. This was actually the first time I've gone to this meeting, having previously been at a health system. So this wasn't the major focus, but a lot of work in behavioral health apps, substance abuse treatment services, women's health, including fertility. There was just a diversity of digital health startups and companies working in this space. And then there were a number of incubators that were there that brought along their five or 12 or what have you company that they've been supporting. So it's really, it's a very rich ecosystem right now of companies and innovators and investors. And they certainly all came together at meeting. The other thing that struck me was a lot of a focus on value-based care, whole person <laughs> care, and the, this need to integrate SDOH data in order to deliver those Care, that care efficiently and effectively. So it was interesting. I think my favorite, the from the investors, because they had a lot of investor panels, like VC is talking about what interests them, what trends, what their portfolios, you just saw a huge emphasis on SDOH. So that was cool because it really, it brings you back to like why you get into healthcare or why you sit in health IT is things that can make people's lives better. So I did like that. That was good. I saw that a lot in a lot of conversations. Very yeah, cool. I think 
I, I was not actually there, but I followed it from afar. And in particular, I also serve on the board of the Zoria Foundation, which supports women in healthcare in different ways. And they were a partner with health in providing childcare to women oh. in healthcare who were attending and needed childcare where they were speaking or whatever it was. And so that was a really cool partnership. I would love to see more of those types of partnerships at big, huge industry events like health. That's a huge amount of money. You guys know, you saw it. It was very flashy. There was a lot going on. There was concerts and all that kind of stuff. I would love to see more of that money going into supporting community efforts at those events. Hopefully they'll do more of that kind of stuff in the future as well to connect back to the purpose of all of the money floating around looking for a home, hopefully resulting in better healthcare for people at the end of the day, but let's get there and also engage the community, hopefully. I saw a man walking around with his baby strapped to his chest. So he was probably like a new dad. And I was like, that's so cool. I can't wait to bring my baby to health. <laughs> I don't have a baby yet, but when I do, it's going to be to bring it. making an announcement, Jennifer? No, I'm just saying. I was like, I'm bringing Going to, to bring the baby to health. Got it. There might be childcare there for you if you do and you're I know, speaking, so, so like, I'm, I'm, I'm on your train. This sounds like a great idea. <laughs> it's more, great. more women to the table and it's going to be, we need all need healthcare for women's health, all health, everybody's health. That's the bottom line. Excellent. That's that's actually a great note to end on, I think. Being cognizant of our time here, really appreciate all of you, Devin McGraw, Lisa Barry, Jennifer Blumenthal, and Stephen Lane. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get to, to bring the band back together for episode three at some time here in, in the near future. But for now, thanks everyone. And I uh, really appreciate your time and participation. Thank, Thank you, you all. You. Thanks, Dave, thanks everybody. Having...